We're momming today with Elizabeth Nichols, a mom of four, and um, the mother of a daughter who is now four years old, your, your third child, Elizabeth, who has a rare heart condition called hypoplastic right heart syndrome. There is no cure for it. That's right, right, Elizabeth? There's no cure? That is correct. That but is correct. They're working on one? Well, they're working on improvements for quality of life, which is wonderful. You uh, you keep this blog. Um, it's called Lemonade Landing, and it's it's so it's so raw and so tender. And you have these beautiful pictures of of your daughter who looks like this normal three four year old girl. And there's there's one picture you see the large dash across her chest going vertically, and there's mm-hmm. about fifteen electrodes hooked hooked up to her. Yeah. And, and she's had three open heart surgeries. She has. She's a trooper. Big time. What What would your advice be to other moms out there who are dealing oh. with, with a child who, who has an illness, who is struggling? Um, Man, I would say my number one thing I would tell them is to just, with no fear, just dive into the diagnosis because you will grieve it for the rest of your life for sure. And there will be plenty of space and time for grief, but this is your world now and you are the mother and you can do this. And I think a lot of doctors told me in the beginning, don't Google it because I would find out too much scary information. I think they were worried I would, I would be too scared. Um, and I did Google it and that's my advice to everyone is don't be afraid of Google, find out all the information you can ask all the questions that you want to ask. And it takes a lot of courage, especially in the beginning, to ask scary questions to doctors, um, especially when it's something that you don't understand. I'm certainly not a doctor, and this was extremely overwhelming in the beginning. But our job as mothers is to advocate, especially when it's something that's very, very rare. and yeah, I mean, you're not gonna you're not gonna avoid it. So maybe some maybe that's a little bit of tough love, but I'd say yeah, just dive in fully and and don't be afraid of the questions. And um, you don't have to accept the answers. You can push for for better answers for the rest of your life. What are the ages of your four kids? I have a nine year old girl, a almost six year old boy, and then suddenly just turned four, and I've got a little one and a half year old girl. So you were dealing with. And you found out about Sunley's condition before she was born. It was a prenatal diagnosis, correct? Yes. Thank goodness. Yes. So you so you could prepare as best anybody could right. prepare, but you also had two little kids running around. How did you do that? Um, that was probably the most painful part. Um, I knew that we would spend, we lived in Midland, Texas at the time. We live in Oklahoma now. Um, we knew that we would have to travel to Houston for her care and that we would be there for almost a year. And my, my older kids came along at first for a little bit and thank goodness we have an incredible support system and we had options for them. A lot of couples, you know, have to split up and one takes the healthy kids and one stays with the sick child. And, um, we were able to let my older two kids spend most of their time with my parents in Midland, Texas. Um, and that was definitely the best decision for sure. But we, we didn't see them much in that year. My, my son was one and a half. My daughter was, I think, five. He was, he was two. She was five. And so she started kindergarten without me. That was just, that was our reality. And that created a lot of trauma, <laughs> a lot of separation trauma for all of us 
but it was the best thing for them. It was the best thing for Sunley that we could both be there um, caring for her and advocating for her. Um, it was an ideal situation in a very not ideal, within a not ideal situation. Um, and I realized in the very beginning, okay, I cannot keep this from being traumatic for all three of my children. The best thing that I can do is just teach them how Christians deal with trauma. And so that's kind of the mindset that I had going into it. And I would just validate over and over. Yeah, this is terrible. Yes. I miss you. Oh, I wish this was different. Um, but this is our reality and we can do this and this is how we can do it. You know, as you were, as you were sharing this, this story, I'm thinking of, you know, my daughter when she started kindergarten and, and Mm -hmm. just, it was last week. I was supposed to, we got an email from the dancing school to, you know, we're costume um, try-ons are today. So when you drop your daughter off, come in, whatever, look, we'll try on the costumes. I read the email, totally forgot. I drop her off. I drive away. <laughs> and no one says anything. And she comes home and we're at the dinner table and she goes, uh, yeah, mom, every mom came in for their costumes oh, and you didn't. You missed something oh. again. And I said, Ooh. oh, we've all been. <laughs> so I just I laughed. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I completely forgot. I was totally available. And um, oh. so you, I'm, I'm just thinking of you missing kindergarten, the first day of yeah. kindergarten. And I'm sorry, that would be your daughter or your son. Yes, my oldest. Mm-hmm. W- was she mad at you? No, really? I, um, she she also is the she's the personality of I can take care of everything. I can be a good girl. I, she, she internalizes her feelings. So I was more worried about her feeling like she had to be good all year. Um, she's, she takes care of everybody. So no, she never acted mad. Um, I've tried to, you know, kind of get in there a little bit and ask her how she did feel. And she did say she cried herself to sleep a lot, which is really hard to hear. Um, but we, we saw them as much as we could. We made the best out of it as best we could. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was definitely one of the most difficult parts. And when we, when we think back to that, that first year, that's, I think that's really the most painful thing, even though of course there was a lot of trauma and a lot of pain with, with Sunley and going through those, she had two surgeries and two calves and several hospitalizations that first year. So all of that was difficult by itself, but I think the separation really was one of the most difficult things. And I want to talk about how Sunley is doing, and we'll do that when we're momming today returns right after this. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. We're back on We're Momming today with Elizabeth Nichols, um, who is an amazing, dedicated, busy mother of four. And uh, one of her children, her daughter, Sunley, underwent three open heart surgeries and she just turned four. So this is, I mean, uh, I I just, I feel for, I feel for parents and families who have to deal with a a sick child. And in doing some, some reading about your daughter's condition, Mm -hmm. I was inspired by, by something that I read that, okay, kids years ago, when they were diagnosed with, I think they call it blue baby syndrome, right? Because with yeah. hypoplastic right heart um, disease, the um, there's a defect that it's an inadequate blood blood flow to the lungs. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Um, yes. 
okay i didn't i didn't completely mangle that right that's okay that's close enough <laughs> like you did but anyway no, um, no, no. you nutshelled it that's, that's all you <laughs> sorry i'm doing this without notes um, no you're doing great but what what inspired me was that because medicine has advanced so much these babies are living longer and now there's a shortage of doctors and specialists and facilities that can help them as they get older is is that correct yeah basically that's and it what a wonderful problem to have right so so yeah if she had been born you know 50 years ago she would have died and we've met parents that have had babies like her and and their children did pass away older parents um so yeah she was basically born with they refer to it vaguely as half of a heart that's kind of the the summary so every heart has four chambers she was born with only um three chambers and only one of her pumping chambers so she's missing that entire right side. She has a really rare version of hypoplastic right heart syndrome. So when I when I Google that hypoplastic right heart syndrome, what it shows is not actually her heart, but that's kind of what she's umbrellaed under because there's just so many different combinations of heart defects that can be umbrellaed under that term. Um, so it, it is palliative care, what they, what they have for these kids right now. It's typically a three surgery plan and she's just completed her third surgery. Um, and so the good thing about that is she spent the first four years of her life with oxygen saturations, anywhere from 72 to 82. And what, is, what, is that, what does that mean? So you, you and I, if we go to the hospital, um, we'll probably get put on oxygen if we're like at 92, right? Okay. A typical person has like 98 to hundred oxygen saturations. So if we're she alone, was always out of breath or yes a little bit but her heart had been had through the first two surgeries that she had that first year of life it had been wired to work with these really low saturations so she didn't actually need oxygen unless she had a cold or something mm. like that mm. um and so people would see her and just be so confused <laughs> like how is she running around how is she doing all of these things at 72 to 82 percent oxygen um, but that's just how she worked she was blue very blue um, her lips would be blue. Her fingernails were blue. Um, but that's just how, how her heart was wired to work. So this third surgery now, and it was successful. She's been out of the hospital now for a couple weeks. Um, it has given her 96 to 97 oxygen saturations, which is incredible. So that's, um, she's not blue. It's, it's the most amazing thing to see. Is, is this, but, from, yeah, go ahead. But, you're fine. um, but because it's palliative, it is, it's given her these great oxygen saturations, but the way that the blood flow works now, which is still completely different than a normal heart, it puts a lot of pressure on other organ systems, especially the liver. So a lot, maybe, maybe all, I'm not sure. <laughs> I know almost all people with Fontans, which that's what the surgery is called that she just had is called a Fontan. A lot of people end up with pretty severe liver issues. That's kind of the most common um, complication that arises, but let me tell you, there is a long list of possible complications. And so her prognosis is just very unknown. We don't know how long she has, but she might have 40 years. So it's a very weird place to be as a mom raising three healthy kids and one child with like a condition that's palliative, but not, she's not on death's door. It's just a very weird, emotionally, a very weird place to be as far as like, how do I grieve that? Because we, she might outlive us. 
you know, so it may, she might actually have a very, very normal life or not. So it's just a very, there's no way to really. I think you take your own advice, right? You just dive in. You don't create it. We don't, we don't treat her any differently. We just kind of take it day by day while also always watching for very subtle, very sneaky symptoms that can come up. So what was, so, what would your advice be to other other families who are who are living with a child who has an incurable illness? Um I would say treat them as if there is no illness. You know, as far as raising them and teaching them how to be a decent human. <laughs> um for sure, but also especially when it's something this rare, um there's just not a lot of research around this compared to other child illnesses. Um, And so I do feel like it's our job as parents of rare diseases to advocate for that. I mean, I feel like we've been put in this position for a reason. We were given this child for a reason. Um, And I think also we can relate to each other more than people think initially. I think a lot of times especially when you have a child with a rare disease, people think they can't relate to you. And so they don't know how to help. And so they kind of pull back and that can create a lot of loneliness. And at the same time, a mother of a kid with a rare condition might pull back herself because she believes no one can relate to her. And I think that's all bogus. I think we've all been through hard things. We can all imagine to an extent what it would feel like as a mother to watch your child go through this. And I think we can help each other and, and we can support each other. And I'm not afraid of people saying the wrong thing to me and upsetting me. That's not something that I allow to happen. I would rather someone say the wrong thing to, than to say nothing at all. So I think we need to all be a little less afraid of, I don't know. Not being people. PC about it. See, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just get in there. You, but you <laughs> get, the, in there and get in the trenches and help each other. The way you're, you're framing this, it seems to me like you maybe had some um, some issues with some friends or family who maybe you thought they weren't contacting you enough or vice well, versa, I, that you were able to rationalize, okay, they're probably not reaching out because they don't want to say the wrong thing or they don't know what to say. For sure. And I've been that person before. Me too. <laughs> you know, before, yeah. Before I was a heart mom. I totally pulled away because I didn't want to make it worse. And spoiler alert, you don't actually have the power to make it worse, turns out. So now that I'm on this side of it, I do share that a lot. I'm like, man, I've had I've had so many people just send me a card or like send me a text. And I know how uncomfortable it is to do that because I've been on that side of it so many times before. And now that I'm on this side, those things really do help just reaching out. And I'll share just one quick little story that I share with a lot of new moms. Um, When we were first getting her diagnosis, it was a long process. We had four misdiagnoses before we got to the right one. And it was excruciating. And I was in a lot of pain. I was fully grieving at that point. And I had a friend come up to me and she said, okay, okay, I know this isn't the same thing, but when my dog died and she proceeded (laughs) to give me advice, And my initial reaction was, are you kidding me when your dog died? But her advice was amazing. (laughs) She like, she told me to, she's a Christian and she told me, you know, ways that she really dove into her faith and listened to inspiring music and different things. She gave me such good advice. And I learned in that moment, 
okay, I am not going to be so bitter that I'm not going to accept advice from people who haven't had exactly a child with a rare heart condition. Because if I limit myself to only taking advice from people who have been exactly in my situation, I'm going to be very lonely, very fast. So I've always been open to, and people do say, quote unquote, the wrong thing sometimes, but it's okay because I'd rather them do that. And I'd rather be open to advice or open to other ways of looking at this than to be so lonely that I've cut myself off completely and only will speak to heart mothers. Does that make sense? Well, you're a heart mother with a big heart yourself. And I think it's coming through at multiple times as we have this conversation. Um, We only have a few minutes left, but I I cannot in any way um, relate to what you've gone through. And I just, I just know my four-year-old. He's been to the hospital many times for for cuts and stuff. Nothing, nothing major. He's the worst. He's he won't take medicine. He hates, he's he's the doctor's worst nightmare. How how has suddenly you know she spent years in the hospital? I, I guess how is she with it? I mean, with being attached to monitors and. And just having all these issues, is she scared of a hospital? Does she feel more at home in a hospital and maybe scared to be in other places? How is she psychologically doing? Um, She is the spunkiest and most normal-seeming four-year-old. I mean, it really is kind of amazing. I don't know what we were expecting after getting her diagnosis. I think something people would picture is kind of like you're saying, like very withdrawn, very afraid. And that's just not, that's just not her at all. She has such a fire within her. Um, She has a motorcycle uh, (laughs) gang of friends that escorted us down here to Houston from Oklahoma. And they gave her the nickname firecracker because she's so spunky. And she goes through, of course, times when she, yes, she is afraid of the hospital. She's afraid of anyone in scrubs. And this last surgery, especially because she was older, was very traumatic for her, for sure. But she is very normal and, and very ready to to just do all the normal four-year-old things. And she, so my, my older daughter too has really stepped up and she's the one, I know I emailed you a little bit about the, the nonprofit we started. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? that? It's called the Right with Light Project. Yes. Yeah, so we, we started a nonprofit last year, really inspired by my older, my oldest daughter. She, after we got home from that first year in Houston, she wanted to have a lemonade stand and raise money for the hospital to give back to the doctors that helped her sister. And that was 100% her idea. Like it was not parent led at all. Um, And she did that. And I I think she raised like, I want to say almost a thousand dollars. I would have to look back, but she invited the police because (laughs) she said, police help people. Oh my goodness. She invited the police in Midland, Texas. And of course the like entire station basically came down. It was amazing. But, um, and we've always said we, we make lemonade out of the lemons that we've been given. So we, um, have this nonprofit now that we're going to do every year, um, lemonade stands around the country. And this is our first year. We have, um, almost 30 lemonade stands going up all the way from, we have some in Alaska down to Georgia, like everywhere in between. Um, so you can sign up on the website to host a lemonade stand and it's a very, to me, it's a very easy, low commitment way to help. If you're, you know, you read our story or you've, you've known us and you want to help, 
this is a very easy way to do it because it's kind of just tailored to however it's just a couple hours a year, you know? Um, so you go, where, where do you get more information on that? Lemonade landing or that, that's, that's all on my website at right with light project.com okay. and right. Yeah. Right. Is W R I T E right. Um, right with light project. And there's a link to my blog through there as well, but this is the nonprofit website. So you can donate, you can order. Um, we're doing a t-shirt drive that ends at the end of this month, or you can sign up to host a lemonade stand and you'll get a box of just marketing and, materials. And I just want to say something about lemonade stands from mm-hmm. a mom of three. They're like the best thing my kids totally ever when, you know, we did our first one. Um, they're like natural business people. I mean, we've, oh, yeah. we've done like block organizers through our rinky dinky lemonade stand. It's all they talk about. They actually raise a lot of money, even though we don't charge our neighbors for a lemonade. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> when the lemonade is free, you get like lots of $10 bills. Yeah. Um, so the kids would love it. Oh yeah. It's very kid friendly. And it's such like such a good lesson in, in business, but also just in caring for other people. Kids are like way better than adults. So <laughs> kids are always so ready to help at a level that I'm not even always ready. Does that make sense? Like the story of your older. eldest daughter is, is yes. what's her name? Her name is Hadelin. Hadelin? Yes. Oh, so and sweet. she's just a trooper too. I mean, so yeah, so it's very family friendly. There's two different dates you can choose from on the website to host a lemonade stand. And we're going to do it every year. So this year we're raising money for what's called a Fontan Go program that Texas Children's is initiating. And it's, um, as you said, in the beginning of the podcast, these kids are living now. And because they're living to older ages, they're having really unique um Challenges. Complication. Challenges. Yeah. With the Fontan circulation. So this clinic is specifically for people who had a Fontan as a child. And I'm so excited that that is going to exist for Sunlight when she gets older. There's no telling what it will do for her, the quality of life that it could give her and, and thousands of other kids like her. So, and, and as I said, there's just no funding for these rare diseases. I mean, this is such a, a small population of people that exist that yeah as her mom i'm like all right world hello please give money to this program so that my kid can have a better life uh, what so, are, what do the doctors say in terms of i mean do you get often well we really don't know because we haven't researched this much before i mean like what's the response that you get from the medical community um there are a bunch i will say first of all this is one of those conditions that it matters what hospital you're at um, you can't just go to any hospital and get good care for this condition mm-hmm. where it tests children's where it's actually you go into those walls and it doesn't feel like it's rare because there's so many single ventricle patients that they see. Okay. So at this hospital, it's much better. We were at previous hospitals when I was pregnant with her. That was not so great. Um, and they have a better handle on it than other places. Um, they're definitely doing a lot of research into how can we allow people to keep their own hearts longer and not need a transplant. Um, And they're not the only ones working on it, but they're definitely one of the leaders for sure. So I'm really happy that we're there. As far as her prognosis, it's just completely unknown. We know people that, you know, live to be five or six. We know people that live to be in their thirties. So that's just, and and the oldest people are in their thirties because these surgeries really started being successful 30 years ago. So they may live in their seventies. We just don't know. So it's exciting. 
it's, it's helpful. Very it's helpful. It's very helpful. Yeah. I tell people all the time we have hopes. We don't have expectations. That's kind of how I <laughs> roll with the punches because our plans seem to change with a heart kid so often. You've done but a yeah, great job. You really have. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I hope anybody listening right now can just learn a little bit from you. I, I certainly have. Elizabeth Nichols, thank you so much. Thank you. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.